Well, we turn our attention and worship now to the study of God's Word, so we invite you there in your homes to take God's Word and to open to John chapter 8. Our text of study this morning will be beginning in verse 13 and down through verse 20, but I want to include verse 12, which is the theme that starts this dialogue off between Jesus Christ and the Pharisees. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am, I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Join me in prayer before we begin our study together. Our great God in heaven, we do turn our attention now in worship together. Though we sit separately and individually in our homes and apart from one another, we are bound together by your spirit, in love, in redemption, and in the eternal plan you have for your people. So our hearts are joined together to rejoice, to give praise to you, to worship you, and to express our love and adoration toward you. Would you now minister to us by your spirit? Give to me the ability to speak clearly on the passage that is before us, but would you minister to our hearts because we've sat under the teaching of your word, under the ministry of your spirit, and we ask that you would grow us in the likeness of your Son because we have learned more about him this morning. Minister to our hearts that we might be able to minister to others the very light that is your Son, Jesus Christ. We want to give our attention, our thoughts, and Father, even our purposes in life to you as we learn from you and as your Spirit guides and directs us in all things. I pray that you would now minister to us together in Christ's name as your church. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen. In our previous study of John chapter 8, we examined the invitation here in verse 12 by Jesus Christ to see him as the light of the world and to come by faith and follow him. And in that following him by faith, the, the sinner is turning from his path of darkness to live in the righteousness of the light that is Jesus Christ. And the blessing that Jesus promises to all who believe is that he will give them the light of life. Now, in our previous study, I used the example of a Spanish explorer named Ponce de Leon who dreamed of finding a mythical fountain of youth. And the legend of this fountain speculated that if you drank from this water or you bathed in this water, immersed yourself in it, you would continually renew your youth, and presumably one would live on forever. If there was one thing certain about that mythical idea of a fountain of youth, though, is that even if you could renew your youth, you would continue to be a broken and fallen human being, continuing to live in a broken and fallen world. And I shared that historical story last week, and I remind us again of it, because there are many today that profess themselves to be Christian who hold a similar and short-sighted view of the gospel. They seem to think that if they agree with the gospel or they repeat a prayer and they affirm the doctrines of the gospel, that they will live forever and yet they will choose very often to continue walking in their paths of darkness, to continue to live in sin as if nothing had changed. It is important that we see, according to verse 12, the invitation 
the gospel life that Jesus is giving is very, very different from that mindset. When Jesus offers to a fallen humanity a salvation of this kind, it is very different than many people have in their hearts and minds today. The light of life that Jesus promises to give is life that takes us out of the darkness of our sins and places us in the light of his righteousness. Our sins are forgiven based on his atoning sacrifice, and we're set free now to live according to his light, according to his truth, according to his holiness. And because of that, we would say that Jesus is not selling some cheap get-out-of-jail-free card. He was promising to grant life eternal according to his own divine nature. And the end result is that believers will walk in his life and spend eternity in his realm of glory. The invitation found in verse 12 assumes that men are in the darkness of their sins. And those who believe, those who put their faith in Christ and follow him will be taken out of that sin and placed in the realm of his righteousness. It is that gospel message. It's that beautiful portrayal of Christ who said, I am the light of the world that ignites a debate between Jesus Christ and the religious rulers of his day, namely the Pharisees. In verse 20, it sets the context for us. This all happened in the temple. And it says in the treasury, which was considered the court of women. So we know that this is the most populated part of the temple because both men and women could be present there. And this followed immediately after the Feast of Tabernacles, as we saw in John chapter 7. And in spite of the debate and the hostilities here, God is sovereignly holding the timing of this event so that these men would not apprehend Jesus, lay hold on him too quickly before his hour had come. That's the context of this conversation and this debate. But at the very heart of this debate between Jesus Christ and the Pharisees is his declaration once again that he is the God that has stepped out of eternity into our world of darkness, and it is to that heavenly realm that he is once again going to return. And therefore, I have emphasized this section of our study as Jesus' origin and destiny because everything he argues for here rests upon his deity. It rests upon his relationship with God, his heavenly realm that he came from, and that heavenly throne that he returned to and where he is seated to this day. Now, we have clearly established that John's purpose in writing this gospel account is that men and women in darkness would come to know Jesus Christ for who he is. And they would believe in him, and that believing in him, they would have life in his name. But John is writing this gospel of faith to men who are in the darkness of their unbelief. And so Jesus openly proclaims to this world of darkness, I, I am the light of the world. And he calls men and women in darkness to follow him. And what immediately follows that marvelous invitation is unbelief. This is an amazing contrast that we find all throughout John's gospel. This book, this gospel narrative that John writes, calls humanity to believe in Jesus Christ, and yet it is filled with unbelief. If you have the note sheet in front of you, I included a comment by one of the commentaries that I read from. The author made that point about John's gospel, saying, no other book in the Bible provides so penetrating a study of unbelief. And yet the very purpose of John in writing this gospel narrative is so that men and women would believe. They would see who Jesus is for who he is. And they would put their faith in him. And yet John's gospel sadly portrays the unbelief in the response of men in darkness to the light that God sent into this world. This is a stunning portrayal. And I think of all the books of the Bible, few show us the glory of the Son of God and His saving purposes more profoundly than the book of John. And immediately following this Lord's, the Lord's self-proclamation of light and the gift of life that He offers the Pharisees respond with a condemnation of disbelief 
and rejection. And what follows that, verse 12, is a dialogue on the origin and the destiny of Jesus Christ and the failure of unbelief to accept the witness of God the Father and God the Son. In verses 13 to 19, we find more words from Christ than we do words from the Pharisees. The Pharisees speak just enough to expose their failure to believe in and follow the light of the world that God has sent. And therefore, Jesus exposes that belief, and I see it on three levels. And you can follow along with me on your note sheet. Jesus exposes their unbelief on three levels, beginning with the ignorance of unbelief. We see that in verse 13 and verse 14. And I emphasize ignorance because notice the words of Christ in verse 14. You do not know what they should have known, that he came out of glory and he will return to glory. Not only did they not know, the Pharisees, the religious Jewish rulers, did they not know the origin and destiny of Jesus Christ, but they make the claim in verse 13 that Jesus is testifying about himself, and therefore they conclude that his testimony is not true. They're ignorant of the truth in Christ because they're ignorant even of the witnesses of Christ. Now, it appears that this claim is a vain attempt to draw in the Old Testament instruction that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. We find that in Deuteronomy 19. The ignorance of this charge against Christ is that Jesus had the testimony of many. John the Baptist, a man commissioned by God to go before Messiah, to make his path straight, to prepare the way before the Lord, sent by God as a prophet to prepare for Messiah. He was a witness for Christ. Jesus also had the testimony of his miracles and those who witnessed those miracles. All the way back in chapter 2, we learned that Jesus had a reputation there in the streets of Jerusalem for performing signs and wonders. And many people witnessed those signs and wonders, those miracles, and they claimed to believe in him because of them. And the sign was even one that got the attention of a Pharisee named Nicodemus. We saw that in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a man that came to Jesus by night to investigate him further. And Nicodemus even confessed to Jesus that his miracles had to be from God when he said these words from John 3 and verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The Pharisees were wrong to say that Jesus had no witnesses. In chapter 5, Jesus was again in Jerusalem, and he healed a man who was invalid for 38 years. And this man gave witness to the miraculous power of Jesus Christ when he was questioned by the Jews on how he had come to be well again, who made him well, who did this for him. And the man learning that it was Jesus, he reported to those rulers it was Jesus that did this. And the Jews, having heard that testimony, if you go back to John chapter 5, we read that they sought to kill him because he performed those signs and wonders on the Sabbath and he made himself to be equal with God. This tells us that they entirely ignored the divine power of the signs and miracles themselves they did not recognize the testimonies that they were hearing about this Jesus Christ. And if you turn back in your Bibles or turn forward in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, Peter was an observer of three and a half years of these ministries and miracles and signs by Christ and the witnesses that saw them. And when it came time for the Spirit of God to descend upon the church the day of Pentecost, Peter preached his first spirit-inspired message there on the streets of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, and note, beginning in verse 22, what Peter declares about Jesus Messiah. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, 
This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. God attested to his son with those signs and miracles. And Peter said, you know it. You saw him. You heard the testimonies. Later in chapter 5, when Jesus had a debate with the Jews about the healing of the invalid man, he talked to them about the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the miracles, the works that he had done. He also spoke about the witness of God himself, and he spoke about the witness of Scripture, the Old Testament prophecies, which foretold his coming. Had they searched the Old Testament, they would have found the witness of God in regard to Jesus Christ. And as far as witnesses go, we should not forget the 12 disciples who walked with Jesus. They witnessed the countless miracles. They listened to his teaching. They stood on the mountain as God shone the glory of heaven on a son and declared, this is my beloved son. And they witnessed Jesus being transfigured before them. For these educated Bible scholars to claim that Jesus was not true because he testified of himself was doing nothing more than exposing their own ignorance. But going back to our text, Jesus adds another dimension to this discussion that focuses on the shortcoming of men to embrace God even when the evidence for the divine nature is clearly visible. In John chapter 8 and verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. In verse 14, Jesus told the Pharisees that even if he was testifying of himself, His testimony is true. You could take away the testimony of the invalid, the 12 disciples, even Nicodemus, and still what Jesus declared of himself would be true. And Jesus based this on where he came from and where he was going, his origin and his destiny. And of course, he was speaking of the origin and the destiny of heaven itself. In other words, he came from the throne room of God because he is God. And if God speaks, he needs no witnesses to support his word as truth. Now, back in chapter 5 and verse 31, we recognized there was the appearance of a contradiction between the passage that we're now looking at and what is said in John chapter 5 and verse 31, where Jesus said, If I alone testify, uh, testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And again, there appears to be a contradiction with verse 14 in chapter 8. But back in chapter 5, as we discussed back in our study then, Jesus follows this statement by saying there is another who testifies of him. And therefore, the context of chapter 5 is clearly Jesus saying, I do not testify apart from my heavenly Father. I don't act and speak autonomously or independently from heaven itself. And we turn our attention then to chapter 8 and verse 14. Jesus says that his testimony of himself is true because he came from God the Father and he will again return to God the Father. So once again, like it says in chapter 5, Jesus is affirming that he and the Father are one. And because of his heavenly origin, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, that he is God, and God needs no man to validate his testimony of truth. There is no man that stands equal to or higher than heaven itself. Now, before we move to our second point, I want to just make a summary evaluation of what Jesus is teaching and what we're learning from verse 13 and 14 about the unbelief of these religious rulers. And as you follow along in your note sheet, we hope by now to declare that man's unbelief comes by willful ignorance. When we think of ignorance of man's unbelief, we must not presume this is an innocent lack of information. 
This is what Jesus declared these religious men were ignorant of. They did not know where Jesus came from or where he would return to, though he gave ample proof of his deity. He gave ample testimony to that. His miracles, the Old Testament prophets, God himself, as well as those human beings that witnessed Christ performing signs and wonders. Had they known that they stood in the presence of God, they could never say to Jesus that his testimony of himself was not true. And this is consistent with all unbelief in Jesus Christ. Because men and women are ignorant of his divine nature, they refuse to embrace the truth of who he is and what he came to accomplish. Paul wrote to the church in Rome of man's willful ignorance. And if you would turn there with me for just a moment, look at Romans chapter 1, as Paul again identifies the willfulness of man to reject who God is. Follow along as I begin reading Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Here in this text, we can observe, number one, men suppress the truth. That's a willful determination to take the truth of God himself and extinguish it. Second, that, that God has made himself evident to man shows the willfulness of unbelief. God exposed to the inner heart and recesses of man's thoughts and mind the very existence of God. And third, that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen in what he has created. All we have to do is look around at this world and the stars in the heaven, the universe that God has made, and we know his handiwork. We know something about God. Yet man has suppressed that truth of God. And we observe again that this ignorance is just as true for the religious as it is for the non-religious. No matter how spiritual a man or woman may profess to be, if they do not believe in Jesus as the Son of God, their unbelief, is a result of their ignorance of this true divine nature, his identity. They are ignorant of his heavenly origin and his present position on the throne of heaven. Man's unbelief in God is willful ignorance. Second, going back to John chapter 8, in verse 15 and 16, we consider the unholiness of unbelief. The unholiness holiness of unbelief. Jesus continues to expose their unbelief, the Jews, these Pharisees, in terms of man's fleshly judgment. And this is what Jesus says. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. In other words, the unholiness of sin is the cause of their unbelief. Jesus presses unbelief further with those words. When Jesus said that these Pharisees were judging him according to the flesh, he could have meant that they were evaluating the truth of his identity based on their limited human understanding of God's heavenly realm. These men could only judge the truthfulness of Christ by external appearances according to the limitations of their humanity in contrast to the divine nature of Jesus who came from heaven. And therefore Jesus could say, you're limited because you're just mere men. I'm not judging anyone that way. 
But I want us to observe this is more than just being limited in their understanding. It goes much deeper than a mere inability of man to know heavenly things. If you back up to chapter 7 and verse 24, this was already highlighted to us in our study when Jesus spoke these words. And you remember the crowd was beginning to get restless in regard to Jesus, accusing him of having a demon. And Jesus answered, I did one deed, verse 21 of chapter 7, and you all marvel. And then he talks about the rite of circumcision that Moses gave and that men will circumcise according to the law of Moses on the Sabbath day. And down in verse 24, he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, Jesus is saying to judge on merely a fleshly human level, to merely judge by external appearances is lacking the righteousness of God. And he says, don't do it. Don't judge merely on the external, but judge with a righteous judgment. When these Pharisees looked at Jesus, all they saw was a man. And Jesus was saying, I'm more than a man. I've come from God. I am God. I am the God of light. And they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, all we see is one of us, a man. Because all they could do is judge by external appearances. But their judgment of Jesus, according to the flesh, had also stirred within them a hatred in their hearts towards Jesus. And this is important for us to observe, that a failure to believe in Christ for who he is, is sin. It is sinful to not believe in Christ. Unbelief, then, is not amoral. It is immoral. Jesus had performed miracles of such magnitude that only God could perform. And the words that Jesus preached were words consistent with the Old Testament Scripture given to Israel by God. And God had sent prophets to prepare Israel for Messiah, not only in the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, but in the sending of John the Baptist as well. So for these Pharisees to reject the truth of Jesus suggests that their judgment according to the flesh is a judgment that was flawed by man's sinful and stubborn nature. As was already pointed out in John's Gospel, John chapter 3 and verse 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love their darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And therefore, when Jesus told the Pharisees that they judged according to the flesh, he was not only saying that they're limited in their human understanding, but also that their judgment was false because they were men that were fallen in their nature. They were arrogant. They were self-righteous. They stood hatefully opposed to Jesus, looking for the opportunity to put him to death for who he claimed to be. And what they believed about Jesus was then unholy. It was evil because it did not attribute to Jesus Christ the divine glory that he was worthy of. In fact, these religious men protested and were hostile to his divine nature. In verse 20 again, God must hold these men back from doing the evil that was on their heart because God's timing was not yet there. Jesus then continued by saying that he was not judging anyone. Verse 15. Now, there are two possible meanings to be understood here. Jesus could have been saying that he does not judge anyone according to the flesh as these men were doing. Or he may have been repeating what he said back in chapter 3 and verse 17, that he was not sent by God into the world to judge the world, but he was sent to be a savior to rescue the world from their sins. Both would be true, to be sure. But we notice the context here, especially as he adds in verse 16, Jesus does not judge anyone according to the flesh as sinful men do. Even if he does judge, his judgment will be true, unlike those who judged by a fallen nature. Now, it is possible that both views may be implied by the words of Christ. 
Because in chapter 3, Jesus made clear that he came to this world as a savior, not as a judge. This reference, however, only tells us that the general mission of Jesus Christ was not to bring judgment to the world. He came to be a savior. He came to be the sacrificial lamb of God that would atone for the sins of his people. And we know the day is coming when Jesus will stand before all men as their judge. And all men will be brought before his throne. And he will make an eternal and a final judgment. And there will be no appeal to that process. Yet during his earthly ministry, we also know despite what Jesus said here, I'm not judging anyone, Jesus did make certain personal judgments in his dealings with sinful people. And in this sense, Jesus made a judgment about these Pharisees that they were judging him according to their own limited and flawed abilities to discern spiritual matters. But his judgments were true because they were declared according to the truth of God, God the Father, and they were not based upon the flawed human reason. So look again at those two verses, beginning verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone, but if I do judge, my judgment is true for I'm not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Now at this point, I'd like to make another summary statement. And we're almost working on our conclusion as we work through our study this morning. But here man's judgment is limited and it is corrupted. Man's judgment is limited and is corrupted. And I see in these words of Christ, a principle that comes up very often in Christian circles. We often hear the expression that Christians are not to judge one another. And we have many references in God's word that teach us this principle very often coming from Christ himself in the Gospels. At the same time, we are taught in Scripture to render certain judgments on a variety of matters and very often to the actions of others. We're to judge the actions of others when we're called to confront sin, for example, or we're called to bring counsel to others, or we exercise church discipline within the body of Christ, or we're evaluating false teachers there in those circumstances. We are called upon to make judgments. We must be careful with this subject of making judgments and the word of God ought to be followed very closely when doing so. But one principle that is very critical in this subject actually follows the example and teaching of Christ here in John chapter 8. In verse 16, Jesus makes clear that he is not alone in his judgments. This is a critical doctrine and principle for the church. Jesus judges in perfect harmony and agreement with the Father. He never acts independently from God the Father or make judgments contrary to the Father's position. And so it must be with us also as believers in dealing with the issues of church life. When we're dealing with matters of a spiritual in nature, especially within the context of the church community, we must not make independent judgments. Our determinations must stand in full agreement with heaven. The judgments of God found in his word must direct us in our judgments such that when we render a verdict here on earth, we are not merely expressing the judgments of God itself, but there are judgments also. We stand in agreement with God and we dare not separate making our own judgments apart from the determinations of God himself. Now, here's a couple of examples. We may confront a brother who has committed adultery, and we tell him the motive of his heart is his own sinful lust. And he may argue with us and try to excuse his sin away by blaming his wife's lack of affections and then accuse us of wrongly judging the motive of the heart, citing even scripture, you can't judge me. You can't judge the motive of, of my heart. We can answer by saying that we haven't judged the motive of the heart. God has already done that. We're just holding fast the judgment that God has made in his word using passages like Matthew 5 and verse 28. 
We are only resting on the determinations and the judgment that God has already made in his word. However, on the other side of this discussion, someone may be appointed to a ministry in the church, and somebody else looks at that person and says, well, you're just taking on that ministry uh, position just to seek the praises of men. And in that case, the motives of the heart have been wrongly judged because that person has no way of knowing why the ministry has been taken on by that individual. Certainly, they will not be able to stand upon the judgments found in God's words. So they have separated themselves from the judgment of God and have wrongly judged the motive of the heart. Can you see the principle that needs to be at work here that we're learning even from Jesus Christ? He says, I make judgments only in harmony and consistent with the will of God my Father. And so it should be for the church. Jesus teaches us a valuable principle of Christian conduct by his own example. We are not to judge one another, but where a judgment is necessary, we must be certain that it is not us that make that that judgment, but God himself. Just as Jesus declared his unity with the Father, so we need to find ourselves bound in oneness with God and his word so that we stand together with our heavenly Father and with his Son. And this is the mistake that the Pharisees made in looking at Jesus and judging him as untrue. They did not believe because they had separated themselves from the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God, and judged only according to their limited and their corrupt flesh. So it was an unholy unbelief. And third, as we move to verse 17, 18, and 19, in this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees, we see the godlessness of unbelief. And here I'm using the words of Christ that to know the Son is to know the Father. If you don't know the Son, you don't know God. So Jesus introduces then a third cause of unbelief. It is man's godlessness. Jesus told these educated, devoted religious leaders, you don't know God. Jesus draws into this discussion the Jews' understanding of the law that they had hoped to use against Jesus back in verse 13. The law given to Israel on the testimony of two men. And notice Jesus in verse 17 refers to this as your law says this. It's almost as if Jesus is distancing himself from the law. And yet we know that Jesus came to this world to fulfill the law. And it was the law that he himself gave to his people Israel back in the Old Testament. So how might we explain verse 17 where Jesus says, even in your law, it has been written. God gave the law of witnesses to sinful men as a necessity for confirming truth in a people that are prone to lie. God cannot lie. He is a God of truth. His word is truth. The law of witnesses was not made for God because God doesn't have a problem with truth. He needs no witnesses to confirm his word. As we've already shown, Jesus had many witnesses And he argued for those witnesses even back in chapter 5. But here in chapter 8, Jesus was affirming his deity and his unity with the Father who gave testimony to his Son in a divine way that stood higher than the witness of men. A man's word needed to be validated by the testimony of two or more in order to establish that person's testimony, whether it is true or not. And of course, Those witnesses themselves had to be giving truthful testimony and not a false witness. And Deuteronomy 19 speaks about false witnesses. So Jesus takes that Old Testament law of witnesses and then applies it to himself, though he has no need of it. And he used his heavenly father as the one who testifies on his behalf. So you can kind of see the context here. Your law says you need to bring other men 
to witness for you. I, on the other hand, and the God that stepped out of heaven, I will return to heaven, and it's my Father that gives testimony to me. What would sinful men benefit Christ to come in and be his witnesses when God the Father and God the Son have stood in agreement? That's the point that he makes here. And we go back to verse 13, and what the Pharisees were seeking from Jesus were other men who would come and stand alongside him and declare, yeah, you are the light of the world. As we've already noted, Jesus did have such men to speak on his behalf. But the truth is that he does not need sinful men to validate his truth. He is God. And he was sent to this earth with the testimony of God himself to affirm his son. God has no obligation to prove himself to mankind. He has already established sufficient evidence, and men have willfully ignored that. Here Jesus again proclaims his unity within the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, standing in agreement. Jesus could say that he is qualified to testify of himself in verse 14 because his Father who sent him testifies to the truth that Jesus is the God of light. And you can well imagine the confusion that this may have caused with the Pharisees as Jesus is speaking about his Father. Because they're thinking, where is your human father? We don't see a father here. They likely knew of Jesus' earthly father and wondered if Joseph was going to be brought into this discussion. The question assumed that Jesus spoke of his biological human father. At least that was the impression that they're giving. Now, there are some scholars that believe that the Pharisees, in their question, are actually mocking Jesus. Where is your father? And it's possible that the Jewish rumor mill had widely broadcast the claim that Jesus was illegitimate because his mother was pregnant before wedlock. Or it is possible that Joseph was dead at this time. And in this case, their mockery would have been quite cruel. But perhaps even more probable is that these Pharisees by now knew that Jesus was repeatedly referring to God as his Father. And in this case, they would be mockingly questioning Jesus, where is he? We don't see God standing here affirming you. Jesus answers by saying, you don't know God. You don't know my Father. It's pointless for these ones to question his relationship with his father because they have no fellowship or communion with God the Father. His unity with his heavenly father is such that if men do not know the Son of God, then neither do they know God the Father. And this is a theological truth that is repeated throughout John's gospel and throughout the New Testament. It is a truth regarding the gospel that not only dealt a fatal blow to these high-ranking Jews, but it does so to every religion in the world then and now. If men and women, religious or not, do not know Jesus Christ by faith, they do not know the one and only true God of heaven. And in this way, unbelief in Jesus Christ is a godless position no matter if you're a person of faith or not. In making this bold statement, Jesus was setting down a central truth of the gospel and the only means by which eternal salvation is possible. The only way to God is through his Son. And Jesus would articulate this to his disciples as he gathered with them in the upper room six months later, just before he was crucified, when he declared, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. John fourteen six. Peter would later preach on this same gospel truth to the religious rulers there in the streets of Jerusalem. From Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men under heaven, by which men must be saved. Now again, I want to make a summary point here that is important to us. It's important to the gospel we preach. And it's important to any that may be listening to my voice that 
have not Christ yet, but maybe have some religious flavor in their lives. Man has no fellowship, communion, or relationship with God apart from his son. And again, this is a critical doctrine of the gospel that causes a great deal of trouble for the church. It caused a great deal of trouble for Jesus Christ. We are commissioned to go out into a world that is filled with religious viewpoints. And like the Pharisees, those religious people believe that they are in good and a friendly position with God due to their own religious efforts, their own righteous deeds. The minister of the gospel then enters into their lives and must communicate to them that they do not know God at all. That apart from Jesus Christ, it is not possible to have fellowship with God. And in fact, they stand condemned by God, being dead to Him in their trespasses and sins. And the reason we come to God through Christ alone is that we have absolutely no ability to please God through our own efforts. We have to come through Christ. Now, hopefully, the minister of the gospel is going to be tactful and respectful and loving in how that we present these truths to the world. But it is nonetheless a truth that we cannot be silent on, nor can we faithfully preach the gospel without declaring this truth. No man comes to God the Father except through Jesus Christ his Son. And this can be a very hard message to preach to those who have lived their lives in devotion to their religion and maybe even have a reputation of moral excellence. It was certainly true of the Pharisees. They were morally excellent people so far as their standing among men. These rulers were not only devoted in religion, they were zealous for the law that God had given to his people. But this reality was actually what had blinded them from the truth. They believed that their devotion and their zeal for the law was their salvation. And because of this, they belonged to God. God accepted them because of their works. Jesus taught that the only way to God is to know him by faith. And therefore, unbelief in Christ makes men godless, even among the most religious in humanity. Now, bringing our study to a close this morning, John chapter 8, you have to admit, as we press ahead into it, is not the most cheery section of John's narrative. It shows us the side of sinful humanity that refused to embrace God's light when he came into our world. God sent his Son to rescue men from their darkness. The response to God graciously sending his Son in John 8 is troubling, And it is revealing at the same time there can be no greater sin than for men to treat God's Son with contempt and rejection. His coming was an act of God's grace. To finally and ultimately refuse to believe in Jesus Christ is then unforgivable. To finally and ultimately refuse to believe in Jesus Christ is unforgivable. And therefore, as we look at the text before us, we have to understand that man's unbelief is sourced in a willful ignorance. Man's unbelief comes from a limited and corrupted human judgment of gospel truth. Man's unbelief is a rejection of God because of a rejection of God's Son. Refusing Jesus Christ is a godless decision. And so just a couple of thoughts to close us out this morning. Number one, what this passage does for the church is that it prepares us for sharing the good news to a world that is living in bad news, though they may not know it. They're living in darkness, and they may not see it. We know that if religious men treated God's Son of perfect light with contempt, very often we're not going to experience a much better response from the world. So we should anticipate We should go out into the world anticipating the world's rejection, even as Jesus Christ experienced. But second, and at the same time, our hope is in the promise of God that through our preaching of Jesus Christ, God will draw some to himself, and those that God draws will be saved as a work of his grace. 
as witnesses or preachers of Christ, we have to trust God to do the saving. He's got to transform the heart of unbelief. We just need to be faithful to preach the Jesus of Scripture and the full gospel of God. And finally, we need the courage of our Savior to preach the message of light that is very offensive to a world in darkness. It should not escape our notice that from the words of Jesus, this world loves darkness. As noted, John's gospel perhaps gives us the most penetrating study of unbelief found in God's word. And in the midst of this hostility and opposition, Jesus is boldly proclaiming, I am the light of the world, and I will grant the light of life. He boldly preached it, and so must we. We need the courage of our Savior to preach a very offensive message to a world that loves their darkness. And this is the mission that Christ has entrusted to his church. May he find us faithful to preach Jesus Christ, the Son of God, him crucified, him resurrected from the dead, and seated on his throne today. Let's close in prayer. Our great God in heaven, there is a marvelous majesty to the text that is before us. As your son proclaims himself as the God of light, the God that stepped out of the throne room of heaven to save the souls of men in darkness and who returned to that throne and is ruling to this day. This is the son that is perfectly united with you, God the Father. And he spoke and he acted, and he continues to reign in perfect harmony with you, God. And we are grateful for him. Father, as your church, we need to be faithful to preach this Jesus, to do it boldly, to do it with compassion, but to speak the truth about Jesus, a truth that the world doesn't know, recognizing that much of the world is going to reject what we have to say. But Father, we need to be bold with preaching the Jesus of Scripture. So we pray for your help, and we pray for those that might be listening to this message this morning and yet have not the light of Christ in themselves. We trust that even as they've heard Jesus being testified to this morning, that you, God, would open up the heart, you would grant the gift of faith, breathe new life into that individual that they might receive Christ, trusting in him as Lord and Savior. We pray for those that are without Christ and who are hearing this message today as well. And may your name be praised because of it in Christ's name. Amen.